And a very good afternoon to you. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. And yes, it is warmer outside today than it was yesterday. But does it really matter when you're talking below freezing and quite a bit below freezing? And uh, that's something that's hitting some of the most vulnerable in the city. Now, just before the noon hour, a few minutes before the city of Vancouver came out with a extension to the warm center operations Uh, In response, and I'll read this right off the release as it came in. In response to the extreme cold temperatures this week, the city of Vancouver extending warming center operations to provide additional capacity for people to come indoors between now and the 2nd of January. Warming centers are activated in addition to extreme weather response shelters. And some of these warming centers are listed uh, I think there are about five or six of them. Powell Street, Getaway, Oddfellows Hall, Britannia Community Center, West End Community Center, First Avenue, First United, and the Longhouse, which is over on Franklin Street. Also familiar and a good outreach to many of the most vulnerable in the city is the Union Gospel Mission. And joining us this afternoon is Nicole Mucci. Thank you for being with us. And uh, I know this is a challenge, always is during this time. What are you seeing, Nicole? Hi, thanks for having me today. Um, You know, it's been really record-breaking cold over the last few days. And we're seeing for the first time in, in quite a while a really extended period of that um, potentially fatal cold for those who are uh, either struggling with homelessness or who are living in precarious housing, so places where heat maybe isn't always as reliable as it should be. And that could be really dangerous. Now, Nicole, I'm always uh, hearing of um, and kind of amazed at how many people do not come into shelter for various reasons. What are some of the obstacles in the way, and is that still a concern? It's always a concern when we're looking at extreme weather, whether it's too hot or too cold. Um, And the reason for that is because every single person is so unique in their circumstances. And folks who choose not to enter into shelters do so for unique reasons. Some of them may have been traumatized or assaulted in shelters. Some people, you know, they don't want to be in a low barrier shelter where other people might um, have recently used. Others are afraid to leave their belongings behind because if they've done that in the past, all of their stuff has been stolen. And as a result of that, it's really important that when we see cold weather like this, we know that shelter isn't the only option that should be available for folks. What are the other options? So something that Union Gospel Mission is doing and will continue to do is we have our mobile mission rescue vehicles out on the road, both in Metro Vancouver and in the Fraser Valley, connecting with folks who are out on the fringes who maybe either um, are living in encampments or who don't feel comfortable coming into shelter, giving them sleeping bags, uh, those winter jackets that will help keep them alive, the thermal undergarments, socks, wool slippers, or wool socks, everything that they need in order to stay warm and stay safe. Now, that must be a bit of a difficult conversation and certainly a a second option uh, when you come across people not willing to come indoors. Tell me about how that works and how 
outreach workers prioritize uh, that sort of conversation, the difference between getting somebody inside and providing some safety measures if they choose to stay outdoors? How does that go? I think the priority really is ensuring both safety and dignity. A person is a person and they deserve autonomy in their choices. And one of the best things that we can do is walk alongside them and help provide them with what they need in the moment. And so our outreach workers are incredibly skilled at what they do. They spend the time, they often get to know people and those relationships deepen over time. And at uh, at points in the extreme cold, they will offer them a ride to a shelter or to a warming center. And if it's declined, They'll say, you know, we've also got this other stuff uh, that's available if you need it. Do you need it? What can we give for you? Nicole Mucci is with the Union Gospel Mission, and we're talking about helping some of the most vulnerable during these extreme temperatures and the ongoing work of people that uh, are with the UGM and other organizations in Vancouver that do this work. Um, from your perspective with UGM, what are you seeing more of, or is it about the same? You know, what we are actually seeing is that there are people who are coming in um, and they're very cold. And so for the last few nights, we have been close to capacity or at capacity, meaning that we haven't always had extra beds available. Um, And what is happening is that sometimes people come in and the beds are full and we take a look at them and they have frostbite already. Their hands, their feet, their ears, their noses are pink and red and obviously very sore from the cold. Sometimes they need a place to rest. They need that cold weather gear. They need information about where else they can stay if we're full and we work diligently to try to make sure that they are safe. Now, when you're full, uh, that's always uh, a bit of concern. How much capacity do you have and how much need is there? What's the gap, if any? So the need is great, and it's a little bit difficult at times to know exactly how many um, emergency shelter spaces are needed, particularly this year because with COVID, um, the city wasn't able to facilitate a point-in-time homeless count. So we don't actually know if more people are homeless Um, or experiencing homelessness than last year. But what we are seeing anecdotally is that there must be more people um, going through hardship because we are generally seeing um, a greater need than what's available. We actually uh, extended how many beds we had last December. So we increased 20 beds permanently. And we're still seeing turnaways, not every single night, but enough that we know there is a great need. Now, Vancouver, like Victoria and other uh, coastal areas in B.C., uh, often seen as a safe haven for people across the country coming out here because of the, well, better climate, uh, especially if they don't have a permanent home. Um, Do you see that still being the case, many people coming to our city and a bit of a shock at this time of year uh, and with this uh, cold snap? Uh, is Vancouver a place that attracts more people from across the country? Interestingly, if a person is to go back and look through some of those homeless counts that I was just uh, sharing about, we don't actually see as many people coming and flocking to the lower mainland as I think uh, people imagine. A lot of the people who are experiencing homelessness um, in the lower mainland and in Victoria have lived here for a certain amount of time, either housed or um, precariously housed, and then become homeless after a certain amount of time. And 
part of that is the fact that it's incredibly expensive here. A lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. If you fall into hard times, it's hard to get back on your feet a lot of the time. And there's also a vacancy crisis. There is not enough um, supply in low-income and moderate-income housing. So if people do get evicted or run evicted, it's difficult for them to find somewhere within their price range. And so that's where we are seeing um, homelessness increase in Metro Vancouver. A reality check indeed, and especially in this city, that's, uh, that is the case. Um, Nicole, what can people do if they want to or feel the need to help? How can they reach out? You know, Right now is a time where one might feel like a seemingly small act of kindness could actually save a life. And so if you head to UGM.ca or if you Google, you know, a local shelter in your community, if you live in Langley or elsewhere, and if you have a couple dollars to change, always, if you can, give. Or if you've got some winter gear that's uh, collecting dust, maybe you got a brand new winter jacket for Christmas and you don't know what to do with your old one you know, donate it to these organizations who can get them into the hands of folks who need it the most. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. And no surprise here, you heard it in the news, BC setting a new record for peak electricity demand. That was yesterday. Guess the hours. Between 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock. And that's usually the time where that's not the coldest time, but time where people come home and I guess uh, they start to cook meals and uh, get the get, get the place warmed up. We will talk later this half hour with Simi here at BC Hydro about uh, that peak power demand that comes in with the cold. On the plus side, uh, for many of us, getting outside and enjoying the outdoors, uh, staying warm, of course, but uh, possibly even going skating on some safe areas. I mentioned this just before coming on air, a uh, little bit of a conversation with Martin Strong. For years in Richmond, it's in Steveston, lived right by Gary Point Park. And uh, every year, the fire department would come over with one of their fire engines right into the park and uh, flood a little area. And then they'd bring in some lights and light it up at night and provide a safe area for people to skate when it was cold enough. It was beautiful. Um, Just amazing to watch. Of course, my balcony where I was living was just overlooking this at Gary Point, and uh, I still remember it fondly. Tim French, uh, Steveston resident uh, and producer here, uh, he has, uh, you still live in the Richmond area in Steveston. Um, you, you said it's continuing? Uh, yeah, no, I, I used to live there. That's where I uh, was born and grew up. Uh, yeah, they do it every year when it gets cold enough, the firefighters flood the uh, sort of a nice Gary Point Park area and you just have a blast skating around. Yeah, it's really breathtaking because you're skating right next to Well, it's the mouth of the Fraser River. You can see ships going by. You've got the area kind of lit up and uh, just, it's breathtaking. It's really quite nice. On the other side of this, there is a a danger and people often looking for different areas to go out onto frozen water. And some of these stories I've worked in news long enough I know that some of these end up in disaster, and there is a warning that's always out, and still people don't heed the advice. But uh, on the line with us is Dale Miller. He's the executive director with the Life Saving Society. 
Dale, thanks for coming and joining us with the other side. Um, dangerous still? Do you still hear stories of people falling through ice? We do, Bruce. Unfortunately, it, it does continue. Every year we do see about 10% of the drownings in Canada are ice-related. Not that many in British Columbia, luckily, although just yesterday there was a rescue in mission of uh, three people, two adults and a child that went through the ice. They were out for a, for a skate and didn't realize that the ice was as thin as it was and, and went through. Luckily, they were saved. But uh, we want to prevent these kinds of situations and, and make sure everybody's safe. There's nothing better than being out on, on natural ice in the winter and, and certainly the the story you just told of a fire department providing that safe ice is is a great way to go, but unfortunately, that's not always the case. And terrible when you hear these stories, uh, like the one out in Mission, um, with people falling through the ice. I, I guess there's a lack of knowledge here where, I mean, even living in the interior for a short time that I did uh, up in the Caribou, people were a little bit more wise to uh, those shoulder months uh, when things may be thawing or just freezing and they didn't go out on the ice but when you get ice around the lo- lower mainland um, I guess there's a bit of a lack of knowledge is that the case in what you've seen yeah definitely and, and you're exactly right too it's those shoulder months that are at, high at r- highest risk uh, beginning of the winter and end of the winter and we don't often get uh, conditions in the lower mainland that uh, provide uh, water that has frozen over enough to uh, to skate on or walk on so so the lack of knowledge is is definitely there and I, I think the last time we had ice that was safe enough to skate on in metro vancouver was 2017 and and several years before that uh, there were very few opportunities for skating on ice uh, in this area so it's it's an unusual thing and we all like to take advantage of it but we need to do so safely Dale Miller is with the Life Saving Society. We're talking about the dangers of ice, especially this time of year or during this cold snap when there is ice around. And quite often we don't know. We don't have the knowledge to even uh, understand how dangerous it might be. Um, What's the advice, uh, Dale? Is it uh, just stay away from ice or look for signs if you see some areas uh, that are frozen over? And I say this uh, noting that uh, Lost Lagoon in the Stanley Park area here in Vancouver, there have been years where people have gone out on the ice. But how do you know the difference? Well, I think the first uh, clue is to make sure that you're observing the signs. Uh, typically, local authorities will provide signage to warn you uh, that they have uh, taken some measurement of the ice, and, and if the warning signs are still up, that means that the ice is not safe. So so that's certainly the first thing. Uh, we we want to see at least four inches or, or 10 centimeters of clear hard ice before going on to it, preferably more like five or six inches. But that's the minimum that we'd like to see. And, and the thickness is not the only thing. Uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, recent weather. Uh, a blanket of, of snow will provide insulation that uh, may weaken the ice as well. So it's that uh, quality of ice and also the, the type of water that you're going on to. If it's a, a river with water run, running underneath or inflow or outflow in a lake, Again, that's going to be uh, less safe ice than than six inches of clear hard ice would be. 
Deal, it's interesting hearing all the different uh, variables in what makes safe ice and what is not safe ice. It's not just the thickness. Uh, how does the Life Saving Society get the message out? Uh, what are you involved with in terms of education for people knowing about this? Well, there's lots of good information on our website at lifesaving.bc.ca. The other thing, too, is that the children learn ice safety as part of their swim lesson education, too. So we make sure that that's part of of the knowledge in those swim lessons. Um, the other thing, too, of course, around the lakes is that, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the drownings occur when a pet a dog, in most cases, will venture out onto the ice, possibly uh, chasing ducks or geese, and uh, fall through the ice. And then, of course, the owner is uh, desperate to make a rescue. And sometimes that can um, provide a, a tragedy as well. No, it's interesting you should say that because immediately my mind goes to uh, pictures I've seen on social media where an animal has fallen through the ice and these heroic people go out to save it. And that's great. Uh, We all feel for the animals. But uh, is that a danger in itself? It absolutely is, yes. I mean, that's that's going to be... uh a real problem if someone ventures onto the ice to to make a rescue of a of a pet um and and we know that uh, you know the 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 feelings are desperate and they want to do what they can uh but best thing to do is is call for help call 911 uh in the situation i mentioned in in mission uh luckily the uh the fire department and uh ambulance service was there in time to to make the rescue and and save those folks but uh that's not always the case, and, and that's where uh, we want to make sure that people are, are making sure that they're going on to safe ice and, and obeying the safety signs that they see around the water. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. We're talking about some of the cold and the ramifications thereof, and one of them is power usage. BC Hydro saying a new record for the province for power use set yesterday between 5 and 6 o'clock. For those that know these things, it's 10,900 megawatts of use. And that beats a record that was set set only the previous year, which was 10,577 megawatts of use on a single day, probably around the same time. Simi here is from BC Hydro joining us now. What does all that mean, Simi? Hi, Bruce. So it basically means that because of the cold temperatures, um, we're seeing an increase in our heating load, which is setting new records for electricity use. So like you said, um, yesterday evening was a record-setting evening for us. So that record happened between 5 and 6 p.m. And that's typically when we see these records occur. It's usually during the evening hours when people are at home, they're making dinner, they're doing their laundry, And, of course, with the extreme cold, they've got their heat turned up. So, um, you know, it's causing um, more electricity demand on our system. Now, I was under the impression, especially in the lower mainland, that most people don't have electric heat. Am I wrong? Uh, No, you're right. So um, a lot of areas um, on the lower mainland are um, gas heated. But, you know, we're also seeing extreme temperatures on Vancouver Island. Um, and, you know, some areas like downtown Vancouver, where we have a lot of condo buildings, um, me, for example, I live in a condo and I have electric baseboards. Um, and, you know, I'm seeing temperatures downtown that, you know, I haven't seen in a long time. Um, so my thermostat is definitely higher than it normally is. You mentioned the electric baseboards, and I'm thinking about our own place uh, in Surrey. And um, 
Well, I think we've got three rooms in the house. Of course, we're natural gas, but three rooms that have the electric baseboards, and they're almost always off, but we've got all of them are bedrooms. This time of year, one of them is used as a home office for myself, and I like going in there and just kind of sneaking the heat up a little bit, (laughs) and sometimes I forget to turn it down afterwards. What kind of cost do you look at uh, when you leave those on? Do you have any way of knowing? Like, what do you see in a bill? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have um, an exact cost calculation for you, but I think you can avoid those kinds of situations by getting programmable thermostats. So, you know, I have programmable thermostats for my two baseboards in my very small condo, um, and I find them to be very useful, and I save a ton on my electricity bill. So essentially I can set the thermostat in advance electronically to have the heat turn on before I wake up and then turn off automatically when I'm leaving for the day. And the same thing goes in the evening. It goes on a little bit higher when I'm returning home and then it um, drops down way low right before I go to bed. Um, And you're right. A lot of the time you don't really think about the thermostat, especially if it's not in the room that you're currently in. So programmable thermostats are a great way to go to save money and uh, save some electricity as well. And they're not installed uh, in construction builds. Uh, You get the cheapest of the cheap, and that's Mm -hmm. just one that you have to manually use yourself. Um, So we've got those in our place, uh, and we haven't switched over to these programmable ones. I guess they're widely available uh, if you go down to your box store. They are, yeah, and you can get them, um, you know, in many different places, and you can buy them online. Um, we do recommend that you have them installed by a qualified electrical contractor. Um, that's the safest way to go. Um, but we have seen the prices of the programmable thermostats come down in years as well, so they're a bit more affordable now than they were. Uh, in addition, uh, throughout the year, BC Hydro uh, will offer rebates on technologies like programmable thermostats, so it's a good idea to check our website um, to see if we have any rebates available. How do those uh, rebates work and what other rebates are available right now? Just uh, top level. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, Bruce, what we have available right now. Usually um, the rebates um, come into effect in the spring and fall as you get prepared for the summer and you get prepared for the winter months. Uh, but essentially it's um, a rebate from BC Hydro after you make an in-store or online purchase um, and you have your receipt and you submit it to us and um, we will um, give you the rebate um, from there. Um, but, you know, there are, if you don't have a programmable thermostat, there are things you can do, you know, at home right now, um, different behavioral changes that'll help you save electricity. So, for example, you know, if you're washing your clothes, wash them in cold water. If you're using your dishwasher, don't use the heat dry function on your dishwasher and just let them dry. Maybe open the door and let the dishes dry a bit more naturally. Um, also, when it comes to home heating, one of the easiest and least expensive things you can do is seal up any cracks or gaps that may exist around windows or doors. So you want to use caulking and uh, weather stripping to to make those fixes. And again, that's something that's very simple, very easy, and you can do it home yourself. And it uh, goes a long way. Now, Simi, we talk about heating, and especially that's the thing that comes to mind uh, during the cold snap. But uh, is there anything else that goes up in terms of power use when it gets this cold that maybe we should also think about? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, again, per- speaking from my own personal um, experience, um, you know, because of COVID and the new variant, um, I've been home uh, this entire weekend and probably I've been home uh, a lot more than I would have if we weren't dealing with, with the new variant. So 
I think that probably plays into it as well. So, you know, if people were turning down the heat when they're leaving home, um, you know, now they may be home because of the variant, so they're using heat all day long. And, you know, that's just speculation on my part based, based on my personal experience. But I think there's a few different factors at play here. Um, you know, but we, we've had extreme weather events throughout the year, um, and I think that that is our new normal, um, and those events do have impacts on our system. So, you know, we're doing our best to make sure we're prepared and that we can provide safe, reliable power to our customers when they need it the most. Right. I checked, uh, and it was six months ago to the day that we had that heat dome, and uh, we had almost like the reverse of uh, what we're having in terms of <laughs> weather, but that was also an extreme use of uh, power, was it not? Yeah, you're right, Bruce. So over the summer, we set a record for electricity use during the heat dome. Um, and that was related to the use of air conditioners and fans. Um, so at that, that time, it was a record for the summer months. And then we used about 8,560 megawatts. Um, and that was an unprecedented, um, unprecedented demand for us at that time. Um, we are typically a winter peaking utility, so we see the highest energy use um, in the province in the winter time. So you can see that difference in the numbers between our winter record and our summer record. But again, with um, you know with extreme weather events and climate change, it's all kind of starting to balance out a little bit more, and we're seeing trends that we we typically don't see. And good afternoon to you. Nice to have you with us. It's Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. And it looks like students are going to not go back to school on Monday in Manitoba, Quebec, and now Nova Scotia. But that is not the case here in BC. K-12 students going back on Monday with the Ministry of Education saying they are monitoring the data carefully. And also saying BC is planning enhanced safety measures for in-person return to school K-12. Hmm. That's a moment for pause and a moment to think if you're a parent, a student, or a teacher. We do have one teacher with us for her take on this. Jennifer Hyten teaches a grade four or five split in Burnaby. And thanks for joining us this afternoon, Jennifer. Are you nervous? Hi. Well, I am concerned because the community spread of Omicron is so high that the PCR testing centers can't even keep up. So our reported numbers are vastly undercounted at the point, this point in time. And they've always said that schools should not be open when community spread is high um, because then you're going to have a lot of disruption as students and staff get sick and need to isolate. It is not going to be um, an easy return if, if schools are going back first thing in Jan- on January 4th. Well, for sure, Jennifer, and the thing in here that concerns me a lot and picking up on what you said is this notion of we're monitoring the data. And uh, I don't know what data that is that they're monitoring. If it's uh, cases and the daily count, well, in the last uh, few days, we've heard that that may be problematic, especially if people are turned away from some of the lines or simply not going into lines at all for testing. Um so what, uh, what is the feeling right now, and how is it different going back this time than in previous times, Omicron aside? What's different now is um, we are facing this variant that doubles every two to three days. I mean, we have not seen such exponential spread in a variant before. 
Um, the other thing that's different this time is that hospitalizations are going up, um, especially in children, in places that have had earlier Omicron spread than, uh, that, that faced it a few weeks before us. So in the UK, the New York State region, and in South Africa, they've all reported higher hospitalizations of children than in previous strains. That's a huge concern. It seems almost like a case of that was then and this is now with Omicron being a very different game. I hate to use that word game because it's more dangerous than that. But the situation is is very much different going back into the classroom. So do you have any confidence in what's being described as enhanced safety measures? And have you heard what those enhanced safety measures might even be for your situation in Burnaby? So the enhanced safety measures that they're talking about are going to be, um, it sounds like it's going to be announced for the whole province and that they're expecting to announce it probably on Thursday. Um, We would hope that the advanced safety measures would include addressing the fact that COVID is airborne and that there are tiny aerosols in the air that need to be addressed. And even Bonnie Henry mentioned these tiny aerosols in her last briefing. And so it is really important that um, HEPA air cleaners or air purifiers are installed in classrooms, um, that N95 masks or much higher filtering masks be offered, uh, rapid tests be given, and uh, ramping up vaccines. Um, you know, in, in I think people forget that um, school-age children, age 5 to 11, have only just been offered the vaccine. And right now, we only have 35% of them have had their first dose, and 65 have had zero doses. This means that from kindergarten to grade 6, um, the majority of the class is only uh, is not protected by vaccines. Um, and so... This is a huge concern, too, is, you know, your highly, highly occupied classrooms, um, some only have windows, and in this really cold weather, it's very difficult to keep the windows open all day. I have done so in the past, and I still plan to do so, but it does get very cold. And so having the HEPA cleaners, especially with a more transmissible variant, I think is going to be important. Um, how much confidence do I have that the government is going to put that in? Uh, we've made these um, we've made these asks before, and they've been slow to listen. I would hope that with uh, the rapidly um, exponentially growing variant, that they will actually listen this time around. You know, it was always a surprise to me that uh, when they announced uh, vaccinations for school-aged children, that it was a take them out of class and go to a different facility when they could have brought it in, period, into a school gym and actually had vaccinations in the school system. That seems to me to be something that was just an oversight, and I have no expertise in knowing the logistics of it, but it just doesn't make any sense. Did that surprise you? It did surprise me in terms of we've done vaccinations in schools before. So every year there's a grade six vaccination program where the nurses come into the school and the the children with permission have got the opportunity to get vaccinated. It's so much easier for families. And it it just, um, it would make the most sense, especially for the, you know, areas of the province where... um, it's hard for families to get to a vaccine clinic. Um, this makes it so much 
easier in terms of transportation, in terms of access, um, those marginalized communities. You know, we really need to make sure that we offer the protections to all BCNs the way, you know, that, that it should not be limited by access. Well, it strikes me as a bit of an oversight there. Uh, getting back to the actual vaccinations and some of the precautions in schools that you're seeing, um, things did change in the last uh, couple months. And we're hearing that, uh, well, we saw that kids uh, were actually starting in kindergarten wearing masks coming into school. But that also made a different sort of scenario for teachers uh, where you are now the enforcer of some of the rules. Uh, how does that play out? Well, I've um, actually been promoting masks in my classroom since the very beginning. And so this is way back in September 2020, even before the mask mandate came through. And um, my students have done wonderfully with it, um, even before a mask mandate, like I said. We talk about how this is what we do to keep each other safe. This is how we help the community. Um, it keeps ourselves safe. It keeps our families safe. It is much better when we're in a congregate situation um, that we use this tool, this very simple tool uh, that works everywhere around the world to keep us safe. And kids are wonderful at being able to adjust and adapt. And they've been really good at um, being able to do it. And that's if, if it's explained to them, they take it in stride. And that's what I've learned over the last two years. It's been a learning for a lot of us. Uh, I do have uh, an 11-year-old in grade six, and I know that he is very much aware of COVID and very, um, I wouldn't say scared, but uh, very aware of people that don't follow rules, and it stresses him out. Uh, Are you seeing that with uh, some children in your school, some students being stressed out by COVID? I think in general that, um, I mean, society in general is stressed out by COVID. And so, you know, and kids do pick up on that. Yes, it's true. And so what we do as a staff is is we try to be there as much as we can with the kids. We talk about it. We reassure them. We do everything we can to try and keep them as safe as possible. And at this point in time, with a high, high community spread of Omicron, I would hope that the province does delay the, re- the start of um school because to put us all back in school and have illness happening pretty much right away with the amount of spread that there is right now, the majority of classrooms are probably going to see some cases happening pretty quickly. And so that stresses kids out too. So when they talk about mental health, um, when they see other students being away and being sick and, you know, worried about it, it, that creates mental health issues as well. And so Um, opening schools with high community spread does not make sense. Jennifer Highton is a grade four or five split teacher in Burnaby. And we're talking about COVID-19 and some of the realities from a teacher's perspective. And you touched on this. And certainly we're seeing today that uh, provinces, including Manitoba, Quebec, and the latest one, Nova Scotia, um, delaying the start or restart of school by a week. So would that one week make a difference, though, Jennifer, or would you like even a longer period? What would you need for a benchmark to decide it's safe to go back? 
I would say one week is probably not enough given the Omicron spread that's happening. Um, I noticed you played a little clip in the newsreel about Sally Otto or Sarah Otto saying that, um, you know, it's, it's probably going to be a good month and a half of, of before we see the peak rise and fall again. So I would say that lower community transmission should be, should be the benchmark. And so, you know, how do we gauge that? Perhaps um, when testing centers are not overwhelmed, um, perhaps when positivity rates fall down to about 5%, that might be a more reasonable gauge of when schools should, could reopen. And in the meantime, buy the HEPA filters and the N95 masks so that when we do go back, no matter what variant happens to be circulating, schools can be safer and hopefully can be kept open. And it's Bruce Claggett filling in on the Jill Bennett Show. A story we've been talking about for the past few days, and it still is not fully resolved. Some single-room occupancy residents on Vancouver's downtown east side haven't had consistent heat for, well, during the worst of this cold snap. And this has been the case at a couple hotels, including the Regal. But there is some glimmer of hope and a bit of a good news story in this Thanks to the efforts of Gregory Old, he's the executive director at Blankets, BC. Hi, Bruce. Hi, and uh, tell me about this. Uh, you've been handing out blankets since uh, this morning? Uh, well, we've been handing out uh, blankets uh, uh, since, well, we do it year-round. Uh, but yeah, because of the, the cold snap, we've been trying to hand out as many blankets uh, to as many people as possible there's a lot of folks that we can't get to, um, and uh, that's frustrating. Uh, you know, I tuned into CKNW uh, this morning, and I learned about the Regal, uh, and I was disheartened here that uh, the boiler broke and that they didn't have any heat. So I, uh, I clamored as many blankets over at our U-Lock mini storage as possible because uh, we have uh, extra uh blankets uh, stored uh, for this type of emergency at our U-Lock mini storage and um, the the best part about this story is that we were able to um, take action and uh, we handed out about 200 blankets and uh, 100 toques um, and thanks and really thanks to the folks that donate uh, the blankets and, and you know like I said we in the uh, beginning of what I was mentioning is that we do this year round and um but you know i i did a bit of investigating uh when i was at uh the regal because you know i've heard about these sahota guys i'm not impressed never have been um anyone who's a slumlord uh should really honestly go to jail as far as i'm concerned um but there's also a flip uh another you know side of this coin a lot of the folks that are in uh, in the uh, these SROs uh, are trying to stay warm as best they can. They have you know some blankets, but they also have those little heaters. And so many of them were using uh, these heaters and portable stoves to stay warm that uh, they actually blew the breaker. And that's why uh, you know they had no power. And because of the no power, the boiler overheated and blew and that's why they didn't have any power. So um, there's always a little more to the story. And I did a little bit of investigating myself. 
and that's what I had found out, and that's coming from one of the electricians. Well, Gregory, there's uh, there always is more to the story. You're right. And there are offshoots to a story, too. And one of the offshoots is not only uh, what overrides a old circuit or electrical circuit, but also safety issues when you look to alternative heat. And uh, I've lived in the city long enough or around the city long enough to know that at this time of year, there are more fires. And a lot of that is related to people uh, jerry-rigging or coming up with different solutions just to stay warm. Uh, we'll get back to that in a moment, but uh, talk to me about these 200 blankets that you had on hand, luckily and fortunately, but uh, you went into action almost immediately after hearing the need. Uh, how did that work? Um, simply just get in my car and get it done. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm only one person. We're, we're down a lot of volunteers this year. Many uh, organizations are down because of covid because of this pandemic, it's uh, played havoc on us. Um, you know, we, I wish we could do more, um, but we're on a very limited uh, shoestring budget. So, um, you know, we don't get the, the, the grants like a, a lot of the other uh, bigger organizations do. And so we're dependent on uh, single donations, single, you know, from families or, or companies. So if there's anybody out there, I will say, please donate online <laughs> because we could really use the money to... Uh, just continue our services and operations when we hear about you know like places like the regal or any other sros um like the patricia you know our all of our hearts sink we want to be able to help out as best we can the folks i really wish who were on the street in a tent i wish they would go to a shelter but some of the shelters are tough to be in and i understand why people want to stay out in the cold and that's why blanket bc does what we do find out where you are and we try our very best to donate as much warmth as we can and but we wouldn't do it we wouldn't be able to do it without um you know the, really the, the folks out there the true blanketeers and the the, the the blanket ambassadors out there and the warmth warriors who are donating their warmth gregory old is uh executive director with blankets bc and you could go to the blankets bc society uh website uh do you have a website up and running yeah, we do. It's blanketbc.org, so O-R-G, blanketbc.org, and uh, we do have an online campaign taking place right now. We're trying to raise $16,000, um, and if there's companies out there would like to donate, please give us a call. Um, call me directly, and uh, let's, let's, let's make this happen. Let's uh, continue spreading the warmth. Donations seem like uh, one part of it. But you're talking about a need for volunteers. Uh, were you alone then in uh, bringing out the blankets, or did you have any help? Uh, no, today I was alone. Um, my son Ben, who's co-founder of Blanket BC, uh, he's now in charge of the Fraser Valley, and when he has an opportunity, he goes out and delivers out that way. And so we've kind of split. Uh, now that he's, you know, he's a young adult, just turned 18, he's got his own vehicle and all that kind of stuff. So, you know. Um, you know, he's been doing this for since he was two years old, Bruce. And so it's in his blood. And I just, I, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm the proudest father you could, you could ever meet, uh, knowing that uh, he's taken the mantle and, and, uh, and uh, he's got his own little territory. And um, the folks out in the Fraser Valley, man, I'll tell you, you think it's cold in uh, Vancouver? <laughs> Try minus 15, minus 20. Ugh. 
Well, your son also has a uh, father who's a role model, so give yourself some credit there. But taking a look at uh, this situation and handing out uh, blankets, what was the reaction at the Regal uh, from the people and possibly the managers when you went in there with uh, blankets? Uh, There were some tears shed, I won't lie, um, from me and them. Uh, um, Sorry, I'm getting emotional here, Bruce. because it's it's a it's tough to watch sometimes, and I met this lovely lady named Robin, who um, she's on the street, and um, you know I did I did a little uh, you know a little chat with her, and and she she goes I won't survive this night unless uh, unless I get more warmth, and I'm like how much more how much more warmth do you need? I'll give it to you all, like you know she's, a, she's one of the street survivors that just um, are re- resilient and. Um, this is why we do what we do, and uh, it's a blessing to be able to donate. And uh, I know that they're very grateful because they've, they they say it to us all the time. Gregory Old is executive director with the Blankets BC. Let's take a moment and uh, just talk about that and seeing and looking at the human interaction when you look into someone's eyes after receiving that blanket. Tell me about that moment. It's tough to. Um, tough to put into words uh you know it's it's um honestly it's it's just tough it's it, because it's um you, you're making that connection you know i've always said that giving a blanket uh to somebody is is an extension of a hug which is an extension of love and there's a lot of love out there uh, a lot of people want to do what i'm doing but you know they just can't so that's why we do it for them um I, I just say we're a glorified <laughs> delivery service. We're delivering like your love. And Bruce, if you have an extra blanket, I will personally come pick it up and I'll make sure it goes to someone in need. Um, and uh, everybody at CKNW, I'll go to everybody's house and, um, and or you can drop them off at uh, U-Lock Mini Storage. Um, they've been a, a fantastic partner. And um, when we hear that there's a, a big delivery of blankets, uh, the folks at U-Lock give us a call and we come pick them up and, uh, we either distribute that day or we, we pack them in one of our four lockers that are absolutely filled with blankets. Um, and, um, uh, but that connection, I'll tell you, is just, there's nothing, there's nothing better on the planet when you know that you're helping somebody and they're going through something. And if, if you can make them smile, even momentarily, it's worth it. And we need those smiles right now. It's been a tough year and tougher for some than others. Gregory, we can hear it in your voice, and thank you so much for what you're doing. People that want to make those donations and can go to a website and get a little bit more, a quick Google search in Blankets BC Society will give you some more direction there. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, and all the best in uh, what you're doing. Handing out blankets, uh, being at the Regal today. Uh, identifying a need after some of the SRO residents were three days without heat and uh, stepping in and doing it yourself. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Bruce, and uh, uh, have a, a happy new year to you and everybody at CKNW. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Hope you're staying nice and warm and toasty. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Oh, social media. Some tweets, or a tweet in particular from last week, causing some fallout still. Our public safety minister, the federal one, Marco Mendocino, is calling on Twitter Canada 
To address that tweet that was sent back on December 22nd, a tweet addressed to the Canadian Medical Association President, Dr. Catherine Smart. Now, the minister says the tweet poses risks to the health and safety of healthcare workers. And I've got the text of the tweet in front of me. And, you know, I'm not going to read out the text because it really doesn't deserve to uh, have anyone paraphrasing the, the actual tweet itself. But it does say, um, and it does make threats and some allusions to the fact that a group of people uh, who are against the Canadian Medical Association president and her stands uh, have been watching and following her family and are just waiting for a perfect time to do something. Obviously, very disturbing, and it goes to show some of the problems that we continue to experience on various social media, Twitter being one of them. And to talk more with us, uh, someone that has joined the program in the past and is back here again is Jesse Miller, the social media educator and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thanks for taking time to uh, join us. What do you make of this? Well, thanks for having me, Bruce. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we, we look at how educated, fact-based scientists have been approached throughout the pandemic. And, and I think most of us are paying a lot more attention to social media over the past 20-some-odd months. But the reality of it is, is that when we look at how to protect medical health professionals, whether it be a nurse, whether it be a doctor, whether it be a person who is working for the government trying to get factual information out to the public, um, social media has played a very toxic role in how these individuals have, have weathered the storm in the sense of they've attempted to share their expertise and put themselves out there to the chagrin of a lot of individuals who say, you know, this isn't part of your job description. But the reality of it is individuals are going to target you. And it's a, a very it's a very terrifying approach to how we should be looking at sharing good information with the general public. The problem here becomes when you have individual doctors who are, are in their own capacities as, as individuals not working for a health authority, uh, putting themselves online. There are a variety of issues that can come up, whether it be harassment, whether it be targeted threats to safety. But it's such a wide breadth of an issue that um, there is no real open and shut solution. It is about how we as individuals choose to uh, participate in digital citizenship. It's interesting because there is a wide scope to this. And when you look at threats, that's a lot different than just misinformation or opinion. And that could come from almost any circle. And sometimes people in positions of power or influence have to be held to account uh, being held to account is quite different than what we're seeing in this situation, isn't it? Very much so. And just to, so people can get a bit of a context, you know, health professionals have always been targeted on social media in a variety of ways prior to the pandemic. In fact, in 2019, uh, the University of Chicago School of Medicine released a study highlighting that one in four of surveyed uh, health professionals had experienced personal attacks from the general public based on sharing medical information online. This was prior to the pandemic. But interestingly enough, among female medical professionals, one in six reported experiencing sexual harassment on social media um, when they put themselves 
out as a medical professional and, and targeting them based on maybe potentially where they work or their role as a medical health professional. So this behavior isn't new. We're just getting a different spotlight on it when it comes to maybe uh, individuals doubting aspects of what's occurring in hospitals or uh, vaccine rhetoric. And the, the reality of it is, is that there are a number of emboldened people who are online who are not only targeting the organizations, which we traditionally say, OK, we want the Canadian uh, Doctors Association to, to be able to advocate for uh, their 70,000 plus members and, and really kind of recognize where one individual might not be sharing good information. But the thing of it is, is that when you start to see these coordinated attacks from individuals who then feel emboldened because um, they have an audience of their peers, um, that's where some of these threats that we've seen over the past week, whether it be the bounty of $5,000 or whether it be the direct, uh, we know where your family lives, uh, that's where law enforcement does have to take a different approach and really recognize that the threat is coming um, from inside the house on a chronic basis for these individuals because their mobile devices do allow them that 24-hour connectivity to these threats. Do we ever really know the gravity of the risk involved in these uh, threats? Anyone can say anything. A group of us could mean uh, myself and uh, and the best wishes of who I hope are my friends. Or it could mean that there is an organized effort really out there. Um, do we know? Do we know how credible it is? And at what point do we take it seriously? Unfortunately, with, with digital threat assessment, it is about taking each event as if it is legitimate. And so what you have to do is go through not only the social engineering side of things where you collect open source information to see what is available, how credible the threat might be from, from images and things like that. So if we hypothetically have an individual who tweets out a photo and says, I have a weapon, you know, a, Google, a simple Google search could find multiple images of that weapon and say, OK, this is a stock image and the threat is minimized. But in Canada, we approach threat assessment entirely different than, let's say, in the United States, because in the United States, with access to firearms that's entirely different than Canada, um, you know, you can find a lot of images that might not necessarily have a connection online, but it can be something from somebody else's house. Whereas in Canada, obviously, with our firearms control, it's a little bit different when we look at how people have access to those weapons that might be deemed to be a bit more of a threat. So in that, when you are a medical health professional and you're putting something online and somebody's saying, hey, I, I have a weapon, I'm going to come find you, um, the threat itself is legitimate. And that's where it doesn't matter if the context is something that's from a Google image or something that is generated and the metadata shows us that the image is original. But that's where law enforcement has to play a role in not only supporting um, the, the legitimacy of the threat uh, report, but also how to work with the, the stakeholders. And the stakeholders do become Google Canada, Twitter Canada, Facebook Canada, uh, or which is Meta Canada now. But the thing of it is, is that that is overwhelmed. That system entirely is overwhelmed because you can't just write a warrant overnight and have it available for somebody to go into the internet and kind of pull out from a profile whether or not an image was uploaded at X amount of time or, or found from certain websites or whatever it be. That's why sometimes these investigations take upwards of a year. Jesse Miller is a social media educator and founder of Mediated Reality. We're talking about these uh, threats and the one that uh, was made last week to the Canadian Medical Association president and the action today from our public safety minister calling on Twitter Canada to address this. Um, address it how and, and what sort of power do politicians have to call on Twitter Canada or Twitter or Facebook or Meta uh, to actually take action. Do is this going to be listened to? 
it, it will be listened to in the sense of the media optics and the public relations piece. But not, not a lot of politicians have a lot of clout in trying to get these organizations, especially the provincial level, to have a bit more accountability. Now, obviously, at our heartstrings, we do see the incidents involving cyberbullying or children or, you know, if a child's taken their life, um, where, where there seems to be a little bit more of the public optics of, well, well, we'll address this issue. But the reality of it is, is that we do need to see some form of legislation come across the federal mandate that does protect health, health professionals online, similarly to what we look at with uh, uh, women's health clinics and the threats to safety that might go there. And so if you are an individual who is targeting a person who's offering health services, what does it mean for our laws to adapt with the medium of of the Internet? And the thing is is that our laws in Canada are very good when it comes to addressing things like harassment or online threats because they very much do mimic the reality of what we hear when it comes to a threat being uttered face-to-face. But the thing of it is, is that when we look at how it's supposed to kind of target one person, we don't know if the person writing something is in the middle of Oklahoma or the middle of, uh, of, of Saskatchewan. And so that's where those those steps to kind of figure out who's behind the keyboard, what were they saying, and how, how do you identify um, a family computer and who is writing something at some time? Um, that's where all those difficult logistics come into play. And I think that um, we are sometimes idealistic in a political point of view of hoping that Twitter Canada is going to wave a magic wand and make some person uh, disappear because they weren't being kind online.